Radioisotopes, ordinary chemical elements made radioactive, have been a part of medical science for nearly 100 years. But back in the 1950s, isotope fever seemed to explode across the country. Radioisotopes, the greatest research tool since the microscope. Researchers using them made some amazing scientific discoveries and created important medical treatments that we still use today. But it came with a price and a dark secret that didn't come to light for decades. That's this week on the Physics Central podcast. I'm Mike Lucibella. I sat down recently with the author of Life Atomic, A History of Radioisotopes in Science and Medicine. I'm Angela Kreger. I'm a professor of history at Princeton University. In her book, she traces the history of radioactive substances in medicine. I actually did my PhD in biochemistry, and I used radioisotopes all the time in the lab. And I never really thought much about where they came from. I became curious about where they'd come from and found out that their availability was very much linked to the aftermath of the Manhattan Project. It may seem a little counterintuitive, but finding medical uses for radioisotopes came out of the secret World War II physics project to build the first nuclear weapon. But first, what exactly are radioisotopes? Basically, radioisotopes are chemically identical to the other, you know, normal uh, kinds of elements, but they are physically different. They're different in their nuclear composition. So what designates an atom as a particular element is how many protons it has in its nucleus. One proton is hydrogen, two is helium, six is carbon, and 42 is, um, molybdenum? Anyways, there are other particles in an atom's nucleus as well, neutrons, and they determine which version of the element it is, its isotope. So take carbon, for example. If it has six neutrons and six protons, it's known as carbon-12, or just C12 for short. But if it has eight neutrons and six protons, then it's carbon-14. Now, C14 is really important because it's unstable. Its nucleus is so big that it falls apart over time, emitting particles as radiation. Now, this is what a radioisotope is, a version of an element that emits radiation. And all elements, if you bombard them with enough extra neutrons, can become radioactive. Now, scientists can pretty easily detect this emitted radiation with a radiation counter. And if you can detect it, you can track it, even through complex systems like living things. Scientists realized that to make the best use of radioactive isotopes, what they wanted was not just the bare radioactive element, but that element incorporated to a compound that they wanted to study or a compound that went through, for instance, a metabolic pathway that they were studying. So they became a nice way to follow a particular chemical element because they give off a little signal over time. Before World War II, scientists were already experimenting with the potential medical applications of radiation and naturally occurring radioisotopes. Radium was used quite widely in medical therapy and in experiments. Uh, So were x-rays and other forms of radiation, other kinds of naturally occurring isotopes, like isotopes of lead and other heavy heavy metals. Um, And already, before the atomic age, uh, people realized using these naturally occurring radioactive isotopes that you could follow the radioactivity of isotopes through plants or animals or human bodies even. However, it should be said that not all of these early experiments and treatments were very well grounded in science. People were using radium for all kinds of different physical ailments, from acne to hemorrhoids. (laughs) It's kind of shocking now, but similarly, x-rays were used for so many different conditions. And this was before physicians really understood the negative consequences of the exposure to radioactivity in these sources. And at the same time, 
Legitimate scientists were coming up with experiments that needed radioisotopes faster than the raw materials could be produced. It's because radioactive isotopes were already in demand that the Manhattan Project loomed so importantly in their production. So already before um, the Manhattan Project, physicists began using cyclotrons to produce artificial radioactive isotopes, sodium-24 or phosphorus-32 or iodine-131. And uh, researchers and physicians were eager to get their hands on these materials, but cyclotrons produced them in very small amounts, so it was effectively quite expensive. Um, Now, World War II disrupted the ways in which uh, cyclotron physicists were making and distributing radioactive isotopes because most of them began to use their machines for the war effort. Um, But in addition, nuclear reactors were a much more effective and large-scale production technology for radioactive isotopes. But like nobody knew of their existence besides the military and certain scientists. So even before the end of World War II, scientists began to lobby General Groves and other leaders of the Manhattan Project that radioisotopes should be made by these you know, nuclear reactors by the government and um, distributed to scientists who could use them in research. They saw this as a way to try to free the atom from military control after World War II. Shortly after the war ended, the government created the Atomic Energy Commission, which oversaw all nuclear research. It started producing new radioisotopes at a prodigious rate and sending them out to researchers around the world. And for the AEC, which was also producing atomic bombs, positive publicity was a major factor in encouraging radioisotope research. There was a tremendous effort right after World War II for the U.S. government to say, you know, atomic energy is a terrible and destructive force, but it can be used for good as well. The facts are available today, for nuclear energy isn't waiting to help people everywhere in some brave new world of the future. The peaceful atom is here now to serve what President Eisenhower has termed the needs rather than the fears of mankind. Nuclear reactors or atomic furnaces provide the product that makes possible practical applications of nuclear energy. That product is the radioisotope. These two purposes, promoting research and publicizing the peaceful atom, meant that the AEC made a big effort to encourage the distribution of these radioisotopes. And with new reactors coming online, scientists got access to huge amounts of new radioisotopes for a fraction of what they used to cost. They sold them. The, the government was actually, you know, as, you know, providing as commodities these radioisotopes, but they were very heavily subsidized. Probably one estimate is about 60% of the cost was borne by the government. Now, part of this was the fact that the end users didn't have to pay for the building of the nuclear reactor, which is the most important part of producing most radioactive isotopes. And in fact, the AEC made radioisotopes for certain uses, cancer research, therapy, and diagnosis, free. So you just had to pay for shipping if that was how you were going to use it. But perhaps it's the atom's fight against suffering and disease that most strongly captures our imagination. Controlled radioactivity has placed us 25 years ahead in the battle against pain and death. What makes radiation dangerous, its tendency to kill living tissue, is also what makes it a weapon against cancer. Cancerous tumors are essentially the body's own cells that mutated and started growing and spreading uncontrollably. So the main way in which radioactive isotopes were expected to revolutionize medicine was in providing new cancer therapies. And in particular, there was this hope that if you could find the right radioisotope to treat a particular kind of cancer, a radioisotope that the patient could take and that would kind of concentrate around that tumor, you could basically irradiate a tumor from within the body. And in part, this hope was sustained and fostered by uses of iodine-131. 
The versatility of the atom in medicine is illustrated by the radioactive iodine atomic cocktail, which not only speeds diagnosis of thyroid cancer and other thyroid ailments, but also is effective in treatment of some types of cancer. Iodine concentrates in the thyroid, and when it is tagged with radioactivity, it forces the thyroid to reveal its exact condition. An amazing radiation counter actually draws a picture of the thyroid area to speed diagnosis or therapy. Iodine is an unusual radioactive isotope and it really does isolate in one part of the body, namely the thyroid. Uh, so people thought, well, maybe if you could find the right radioactive element, you could get to almost any organ of the body that was affected by cancer. That did not prove to be the case. So that was one of the great disappointments, is being able to use radioactive isotopes to selectively kill cancer cells. On the other hand, cobalt-60, which is a radioactive isotope, was used as a new external source of radiation and teletherapy. With a sharp, effective beam of atomic radiation, which does not injure healthy tissue near the cancer, the nuclear tool bombards deep-seated tumors with a stream of invisible rays, billions of particles of energy similar to X-rays but much stronger. So it did end up revolutionizing cancer therapy, but not in the way that people expected, more as a replacement for radium, much more targeted and much more precise. However, the use of radioisotopes as tracers rather than as radiation sources was very revolutionary in the life sciences and in medicine as well. Capturing the atom's probing power, science has found a powerful new tool to study and defeat sickness and make a healthier, happier life for the benefit of all mankind. The atomic tracer, a common element tagged with radiation like a sheep with a bell. And because they are tagged, they can be traced, thus giving scientists, engineers, and doctors worldwide an invaluable tool for research and money-saving applications into biology, medicine, health, agriculture, and industry. So like I mentioned earlier, specific compounds can be made just a little bit radioactive. Not enough to cause any serious tissue damage, but enough to detect and track. So a patient might drink one of these atomic cocktails, and researchers would use a radiation detector to follow its path through the body and see where it wound up. And a lot of what Krieger research follows the history of these tracers and their use in understanding human physiology. And the examples that I give in my book have to do with the solving of metabolic pathways. And by biochemists, this was just tremendously powerful. The tracing of different organ systems and hormones and other kinds of messengers in the body and physiology. Think about, you know, insulin and the way in which that moves and operates in the body. Um, also, uh, the development of diagnostics in nuclear medicine. So today, many people are diagnosed using a technetium-99M, and that's definitely an outgrowth of the earlier uses of other radioactive isotopes. The development of DNA sequencing and all other kinds of methods to handle and analyze DNA in the 1960s, 70s, 80s just would have been unthinkable without the available of um, radioactive tags, especially P32 and sulfur-35. I mean, this was absolutely crucial, even though it's often unremarked on as a kind of a, um, you know, just the, the daily methods of that whole um, arena of activity dealing with nucleic acids. Now, they've made huge contributions to medical research, but there is another, darker side to the story of radioisotopes. The other thing that's worth bearing in mind is that the legacy of radioisotopes remains uneven. So I wanted to show a more ambivalent legacy. It's both positive and negative, things that we really prize as well as things that we feel much more uncomfortable about. 
the government experimented on human beings, at times without the subject's knowledge or permission, and the whole truth wasn't uncovered for decades. It's actually a big reason why Krieger was able to write her book. Well, one of the reasons that I was able to gain so many sources on radioactive isotopes is that during the Clinton administration, concerns about the role of the U.S. government in what were called human radiation experiments um, came to the fore through uh, some very astute investigative journalism in the early 1990s. Clinton uh, convened an advisory committee on human radiation experiments, which looked through thousands of government documents to try to assess what the role had been of the U.S. government in these experiments in which people were often unwittingly exposed to radiation and in many cases, you know, harmed by it. In some cases, not harmed. In other cases, um, harmed. And in some cases, it's actually hard to know what the effects might have been. And one of the most notorious experiments um, that uh, was being written about in the 1990s had to do with um, a maternity um, clinic in Vanderbilt in which uh, pregnant women were given small amounts of radioactive iron uh, and then the amount of radioactivity that um, you know remained in their body over time was, was followed. And the reason this was being done is that anemia is a real problem in pregnant women. And by looking at iron turnover in pregnant women, one could try to understand how iron is taken up and how the problem of anemia might be addressed. But these women were never told, or at least they didn't appear to have been told, they were being given um, a radioactive isotope. And in many cases, they were at this clinic because they were poor women. So that's why they were at an academic um, hospital to start with as maternity patients. So um, as it turned out, some of those women found out decades later that they had been given unwittingly uh, radioactivity when they uh, were pregnant. And a study of Um, Women who were at this clinic and part of a large nutrition study uh, that compared those women who'd been given radioactivity and those women who hadn't found that there were a few more um, childhood cancers among the children of women born who had been given radioactive iron than those who hadn't. And um, in fact, there was a big lawsuit about this that was settled, and it was really a tremendous illustration of the abuse of power that pregnant women were part of the study without being fully informed. The AEC would send out radioisotopes, but wouldn't track whether they were being used safely or ethically. And for many of these cases where there were very low levels of radioactivity involved, um, you know, it may have been harmless to give people radioactivity, but we look back and the presumption that it was harmless and that the effects were negligible and that people didn't need to be told is just kind of unthinkable to us. And in fact, it was in part the legacy of these experiments that helped to change uh, the, emer- you know, the emerging ethical norms about human subjects. Today, the use of radioisotopes is a shadow of what it used to be. The government's zeal to promote them started to wane in the late 1960s as more information started coming out about the dangers of exposure to low-level radiation. And the unfulfilled promises of miracle cures gave way to growing public ambivalence towards nuclear technology and greater mistrust of the government. But they are still used to treat some cancers and to help image a patient's bones and organs. Each year, about 50 million nuclear medicine treatments are administered to patients around the world. That's all for this week's Physics Central podcast. You can find more of our podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at www.physicscentral.com. Thanks for listening.